Welcome to our podcast called Versed with Scott Tittle, a Viam Capital podcast, where we will be interviewing leaders in the long-term care sector who are shaping the future of the profession. We'll be discussing issues top of mind to them so our listeners can be even more well-versed as they tackle their day. This podcast is powered by Viam Capital, a new national financial services firm focused exclusively on providing capital solutions to the seniors' housing and healthcare sectors. For more information, you can find us at viamcapital.com. I'm your host, Scott Siddle. This is Versed. I'd like to welcome everyone to our newest episode of Versed, the podcast sponsored by Viam Capital. I'm very excited about our guest today, Ann Tomlinson from IT Advisory. And Ann, we've been friends for a long time, worked in a lot of different roles together in different factors of our careers, but I'm really excited for our conversation today to have you on. For our listeners, I thought it'd be really good for them to hear a little bit about your background, a little about ATI Advisory, what kind of led you to form it, and then also how you work with your clients right now. I have been in consulting for a long time, and I was at another firm for many years, which I loved, Avalier Health, and grew a practice group there focused exclusively on post-acute and long-term care which was wonderful. That is a larger organization with lots of other areas of focus. And I just decided that in 2014, I was like, you know, it feels like the time is right to start a firm whose sole focus is going to be around helping public and private leaders in developing solutions oriented around growing complexity of need in the population around healthcare and social services kind of taking everything that I had done before, but but then building it out and really shining a light on it and creating a focus. So post-acute and long-term care has been is the foundation of it. But now we've really built out capabilities around Medicare Advantage, value-based care. We even have a prescription drug pricing group. You know, we work with states, we work with foundations, but the core in my area of expertise that was the foundation of all of it is in post-acute and long-term care. Yeah, and you've got a great team there. I know Fred Bentley joined you recently. Yes. Tell us about your team and how many people you're on staff. Yeah, so we're at 25 people now. We are organizing three pillars of work, and Fred leads is now leading the post-acute and long-term care work, which is phenomenal. I'm so, so delighted to have him. And he sits within our Medicare group that does value-based care. We do PACE. You're familiar with the PACE program. We're doing a lot of work operationally helping organizations set up PACE programs. We work with primary care groups, especially those who are now, you know, looking at assisted living and skilled nursing as places where they want to focus their practice within value-based care. We have a Medicaid long-term services and supports and program integration group. It's also about 10 people. And then, like I said, we have our prescription drug pricing, which is just two people right now, but growing. Well, that's exciting. Well, thanks for giving us background. It's, it's, it's been exciting yeah. for me to see you grow your practice and all the ways you work with your clients. And so it's really exciting. It's so fun. Yeah, it's really yeah. fun to build something of really gratifying. Well, let's just jump in the topic of the day, which is value-based care. It's kind of a hot topic because you and I just came back from the Asha Spring Conference. Felt like every discussion panel was revolving around value-based care. You led a very interesting discussion on value-based care, one, one breakout session. I feel like you can define it lots of different ways, depending on the context, depending on the component of the healthcare sector. How would you define it in long-term care? Having a grounding in what it what it's intended to do is very important. So value-based care in its essence is reforming the way that we deliver healthcare with the goal of getting much better outcomes for the unit costs of service. I'm sure everybody on this who's listening has heard people say volume to value a hundred million times. 
but it really is getting away from the primary financial reward in healthcare being based on the number of units of service that are delivered to what those units of service actually deliver in terms of value. So that's kind of the underlying definition. And then what's value-based payment then is then that financial arrangement, the contract, the payment arrangement that actually aligns with higher value of care. So in senior living and skilled nursing and really any setting of care, it's taking some group of services or maybe all of the services for a population and saying, okay, the entities at the at the heart of delivering that care, the providers themselves, are going to now be held accountable for the costs of a chunk of services or all of the services. So we have a, a phrase we call total cost of care risk, which just means that, you know, a provider organization is sitting there essentially responsible. If somebody goes to the hospital or the emergency room, ultimately they're accountable for that and at risk for the, you know, actuarial risk essentially for that. Value-based payment doesn't have to be that extreme in terms of risk. It can be as small as we're going to reward you financially if somebody gets, you know, a higher rate of vaccinations for the flu or if, you know, the wait times are lower in terms of the fulfillment at the service itself. So there's a lot, there's a very broad continuum. I think in the way we tend to talk about it in facility settings like assisted living and, and skilled nursing is you have a resident population that lives there. They are using a lot of healthcare, and that healthcare largely is being delivered in a fee for service type of volume based environment. And what we want to do is begin to migrate some of that into financial relationships with healthcare providers that interact with them on a regular basis, say primary care providers or pharmacists, or it doesn't have to be primary care, care management organizations, essentially to take responsibility for keeping them out of the emergency room and keeping them out of the hospital and helping extend their life and their quality of their life. That can happen when you change the way that you pay for those services so that the incentive is to spend more time with them, understanding their needs, medication management, preventing them from going to too many different specialists that they don't need to be going to, working with the family. It's hard. Value-based care is hard. It's harder than volume-based care to deliver, but there's an enormous amount of value to be extracted, if you will, from those settings because we have been really inefficient and the way we deliver healthcare, particularly to that population that's living in facilities. So we're going to talk about some specific examples, both in skilled and AL, but I heard you on the panel at ASHA Spring Conference a couple of weeks ago say, you know, this is not new. It's not a new concept, right? I mean, there's, we've been trying to elevate value-based care and value-based payment for some time. And so say a little about the history dating back, I think, probably maybe several decades even, right? For people who are listening who are familiar with the program for all-inclusive care for the elderly or PACE, that really was the first ever value-based payment arrangement, I think, in health. And, and maybe actually, I would even argue that the DRG, the Diagnosis-Related Group Payment to Hospitals, that it's crazy to think about this now that we used to pay hospitals on a cost basis. You know, they would just say, here's so much it costs. <laughs> Medicare would just be like, okay, here you go. That we moved into a prospective payment system where we say to the hospitals, hey, look, all right, everything that happens within this hospital 
is now your responsibility. We're going to tell you how much we're going to pay for it. And then you are responsible for delivering that. We eventually built quality measures into that and things like that. Risk-based payment, measuring quality, holding providers accountable for care. We've been doing that since the early 80s. The ACA passed in 2009, and that kind of ramped up the visibility of it because we now created the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation within CMS, whose job was essentially to really develop out and test these various models. Now, while CMMI was doing that, I would encourage your listeners to think about this in two buckets in a way. We have half of the Medicare population that is getting their healthcare through the traditional Medicare fee-for-service program, in which there are these demonstrations running with ACOs. You've heard of accountable care, Medicare shared savings programs, there used to be sort of bundle payment, lots of things going on over there. Then over on the other side, there's Medicare Advantage. And enrollment in Medicare Advantage has been growing really quickly. And these private insurance plans were essentially capitated for all of the healthcare costs for the people who choose to enroll in them, they are payers who have been now engaging in value-based contracting with providers. The Medicare Advantage program and payments to managed care organizations, are that is not value-based care. That's just the delegation of actuarial risk and the Medicare program to private insurers. They are then in the same boat as CMS, right? They're just paying bills. And mostly they're paying on a fee-for-service basis. But increasingly, they have been engaging in, I would say, probably ahead of now, CMS, and actually enabling this rapid growth in investment in these primary care organizations that are very tech-enabled and really capable of taking on an enormous amount of actuarial risk for the populations that they serve. So if you're familiar with like Oak Street Health is a good example of one of those. Village MD is one that we've heard of in our space quite a bit. Aspire, which was uh, not a total cost of care model, but it was palliative care at home. Landmark Health. I mean, all of these venture-backed, private equity-backed arose out of actually responding to the needs of these Medicare Advantage plans for better management and better cost controls. So we kind of accelerated ahead of CMS in that sense. Let's kind of jump right into the operator side because we have a lot of listeners here probably thinking, okay, I'd like, I'm curious about value-based care. As a SNF operator, what are the benefits and how does someone start going down this path? On the SNF side, it's tricky because on the one hand, there's an enormous amount of opportunity for savings in the resident population. Because right now, on average, the skilled nursing facility sector is hospitalizing their residents at a rate of 700 per 1,000. That's a, it just is a benchmark in the regular Medicare population. It's like 300. We know that when the long stay resident population in a skilled nursing facility is managed with a primary care intervention, we know this from data from Optum, that we can actually get that hospitalization rate down to 300 per 1,000. Mm-hmm. So to, match, to match the general Medicare yeah. beneficiary generally. Wow. Because, you know, you should be at the general population or below because you can skill in place in a managed care contract. Theoretically, the skilled nursing facility is a setting in which we should be able to care that it intervenes in emergent conditions and emergent situations before they become emergent and also where we can address emergent conditions in real time by skilling in place. So 
that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. Hospitalizations like 10 to 15, $20,000 per stay. And then you're coming back anyway. So it's a lot of money. The trick is to, for the skilled nursing facility to be ready to and able to benefit from the savings that accrue to just kind of stopping that churn through the mm-hmm. hospital at a level that actually is higher than the money that they make when their residents are coming back through on a skilled stay. And the reason why it's challenging is because you have to bring a lot of capabilities to bear through partnerships with primary care organizations. Those primary care organizations have are part of ACOs or they're part of, you know, Medicare Advantage plan contracts. And so, you know, there's a kind of, you think of like that savings has to kind of be shared across a number of different organizations. We struggle a little bit sometimes to find enough savings that it's that it actually rewards them for stopping yeah. that chart. They need to be ready. If I'm a CEO of a larger regional skilled operator portfolio, what are those first steps to become ready? I'm going to start at the most basic, just the really most basic level. Like you really do have to educate yourself. What I am seeing is that I'm seeing a lot of operators jumping into the first organization that kind of comes across their path and pitches them on on a partnership and they they leap in. And it's very important just to start having the conversations and educating yourself with as many different sort of solution providers out there as possible. The biggest one is Optum. Talk to them, but talk to others as well, because there's a lot of different ways you can go about doing this and a lot of different types of arrangements that you can enter into. Educating yourself is a, is a really important first step and just having those conversations. The other thing, though, is that in order to really benefit financially from the value-based care that would be delivered in your building, you have to be ready to take on some of that risk. So you could look at this in one of two ways. You could look at this as like, we're going to bring value-based care into our building. We're not going to take risk, but we're going to improve care for our residents. And we're going to perform a lot better now on all of our quality measures. And this is this, this is the right thing to do. We're going to find a really good partner, you know, and we're going to get paid for some of the kind of the upside, small amount of money for kind of value that we're creating, but we're not going to take on a lot of the risk. That's great. That is great. The other option is if you really want to benefit in being kind of a population health manager for your resident population, you have to be ready to take on some of that downside risk. And you don't have to become a Medicare Advantage plan to do that by any stretch, but you do have to enter into a partnership with a primary care organization that that has those risk-based contracts and can share in that risk and the savings with you. And those are the organizations that you have to get to know slowly over time and not just my main piece of advice is don't just jump into something. Yeah, really spend the time to educate yourself and your team. There are some incredible opportunities for value-based care and outcomes for senior living and assisted living. So maybe say a little bit about what you're excited about in that side of the stuff. I'm really excited about that side because unlike skilled nursing, where it's really complicated because in some ways, skilled nursing is a really easy population to manage because there's it's such a controlled setting and People are at a point where they they need so many interventions. But on the other hand, it's complicated because of all the conflicting financial incentives. Not the case in assisted living. And assisted living is kind of a different set. The challenges are really 
just persuading the population in your building to participate in whatever the program is. But there's no financial downside at all. To me, this is where the really exciting opportunities are because increasingly the primary care organizations that are specializing in being in assisted living, they're expanding the way in which they can bring that value-based care to the building. So it used to be, not that long ago, that the only way you could really do this in a building is if you enrolled all of the residents into a special managed care plan called an IE SNP. That was hard because they <laughs> many residents don't want to do that. <laughs> so you're kind of stuck. But increasingly now, these primary care groups are coming with accountable care organizations and things like that where, you know, your residents don't have to switch plans. They essentially just begin as they enter into this, into the relationships with these primary care physicians and use the services on site. They just get naturally aligned to these ACOs and then the kind of financial incentives are all aligned. Again, this is a population that is going to the emergency room and the hospital way too frequently. It's hugely inconvenient for the families. There's so much we could improve on in terms of care management, medication management, and the building itself can actually offer those services. It doesn't take that much to retool existing staff into becoming care managers. They are really offering an enormous amount of value to that primary care organization that's going to come on site. To your point there, and I think that's a really important thing for our listeners on the AL side to consider. I've heard our friend Lynn Katzman say to AFL AL providers, you're already doing all of this work in-house. You just don't realize how much you could be benefiting through a value-based care experience and then to elevate your staff and your residents accordingly. So I, I think that was really an interesting point you just made to highlight what I've heard Lynn say as well yeah. is that senior living operators are already doing a lot of the work that could be done through a relationship like this. Is that right? Yeah. And you know, I, she's so positive about the sector and I tend to, she and I get into arguments sometimes because I'm like, the operators are not doing what they should be doing, you know? And her point to me is always, there's so much that's happening inside these buildings that's so valuable. What she's talking about is re-engineering some of the processes and some of the job descriptions a little bit So they're a little bit more oriented towards the management, the healthcare management of the population. That's what residents and their families are really looking for. And one of the things that one of my panelists said at at the spring conference, which was, I thought, very compelling, this was Christophe from Kirana. And he said, you know, we're in buildings in your market. Increasingly, families are making decisions about where to place their family member. And when this is in place and available, that's going to be a market advantage. And I think that's true. I mean, I was just speaking as a daughter myself. I'm moving my mother actually into independent living this weekend. I'm frustrated already that when I said, so, you know, where is she going to get? It's like this health and wellness model and it's very fancy. Who's going to provide primary care? They don't know. They're like, well, talk to some of the other residents. Maybe they can recommend somebody, you know? Like, what? She's 82 years old. Like, her whole life is managing her health now. You're experiencing something. I know that a lot of people, uh, listeners are experiencing right now is sort of the the adult child and the caregiver. And I want to get into an interesting project that you've worked on in in your own personal life on the side as well. 
I think for our listeners, they already know it all too well, but I think in this world of value-based care, seeing it as an opportunity to show value, seeing it seen as a way to demonstrate that this can be more than just a care recipient, that they're the residents that have lives and want to achieve outcomes and want to have their health improved. So I think that's that's really exciting, but I think it can be seen as a as a marketing opportunity to really show that there's more happening building than just residents being there, right? Yeah, so, I completely so we'll talk, agree. We'll talk more about the benefits of value-based care. Are, are there downsides? There are downsides to everything, you know, and there's actually a very heated debate going on right now in Washington among the policy wonks about whether or not value-based care even works, honestly. From a perspective of the federal government saving money, we haven't really seen savings. We've seen a lot of primary care organizations make a lot of money and get really high valuations. So it's like at the end of the day, when you capitate payment to an organization, you're, you know, you're changing the incentives now potentially to stent on care. Some of your listeners may recognize this in the hospice benefit, for example, or home health, where, you know, we're paying on a kind of on an episodic basis or we're capitating payment. And then sometimes it's a little bit of an effort to just to get the providers to come out and do what they're supposed to do. That's a little bit of an existential challenge with value-based care. I don't know that I see any downsides from an operator perspective. It's a big change, despite what Lynn says, and I agree with her that they're already doing it. It's still not nothing. To you know, there are resources to be expended, staffing, you may need to realign. Uh, I imagine there's an administrative... It's work. ...called a burden, possibly, but maybe it's surmountable through IT, but it is, it is a consideration. Families can get confused. You know, I make a big deal about, oh, this is what families want. Well, you know, sometimes what families want is for you to send somebody to the emergency room because they're scared. Why didn't you do that? There are nuances and complexities to everything, and I think this definitely qualifies. I want to ask a question, kind of a forward-looking question. In your crystal ball, where do you see value-based care going in the next 10 to 15 years? If we were to have this podcast in 15 years from now, looking back, kind of what role does it play in moving the needle on outcomes and improving quality of care? And what kind of percentage of penetration are we seeing in terms of MA plans and value-based? So what do you see going ahead here? I actually think that the large payers, United Healthcare, Humana, Aetna, CDS, will start to develop very specific products aimed at senior living that are, think of it as like, and not to get too into the weeds on how Medicare Advantage products work, but there's a lot Medicare Advantage plans can pay for that residents are paying for in their fees right now. As these Medicare Advantage plans grow, they're going to be competing for enrollment. They're growing off of a large base. They want to keep growing. That's what their investors demand. They're going to be looking in the nooks and crannies. And there's this whole middle market that we talk about all the time, right? And senior living that kind of can't afford it, but tends to enroll in Medicare Advantage at much higher percentages. Actually, it will be the Medicare Advantage plans that help to expand the senior living market by offering sort of more integrated products with senior living that defrays the cost for the resident and enables them. And, and they'll be looking for partners. That's kind of what I'm, I'm working on right now and excited about. I feel very passionate about yeah. because it's a really like, there's a lot of value leaking out right now. You know, yeah. we're kind of double paying for things. <laughs> there are efficiencies to be had in integrating it. And that's what I'm excited about and working on. I think, Ann, it would be really exciting for us, and I don't mean to look out 10 or 15 years, but to check in with you in the near future just to kind of see 
where things are going. And and as I shared with you on our prep call for this podcast, we're going to be going down a path here, our own at Vime Capital, to kind of highlight some work that's being done out in the sector right now. So our listeners can really have a, a great understanding from you know certain models, what works, what doesn't work. So we're going to talk to leadership and, and big skilled, you know, small independent owner skilled, regional assisted living, independent owner AL, maybe talk to some payers as well. Kind of just give some real examples of what's happening in the front lines. So really excited about that. Hey, we've just got a few more minutes. I want to pivot to uh, something that I know you're very passionate about, which is your daughterhood project. Say, yeah. Tell the listeners a little bit about it. I'm really fascinated about the work you're doing. I got really excited about the podcast in particular. I listened to several and I want to share the one of us with Patty Davis was absolutely fascinating. Rob Reagan's daughter. I thought, boy, as a, as a fan of President Reagan, and I, I was really lucky to meet him once a long time ago, I found her podcast to be incredibly fascinating, but incredibly relatable at the same time, even though she's the daughter of a former president. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. When I launched ATI, I launched Daughterhood at the same time with the idea being that I'm tired of working on healthcare and healthcare policy and without understanding the ground level of what's happening. So many times, you know, people come, you know, everybody who's listening has had this experience because we're in the field, your family members, your friends, they come to you, they have questions, they want to know what they're supposed to do. And you realize you don't have great answers. I wanted to try and take what I understand and translate it into something that uh, could help uh, caregivers and then kind of vice versa, be in community with them so I can hear from them. And actually, um, I had a really gratifying thing happen, just highlighting that the president issued an executive order yesterday on family caregiving and a provision in it about acute hospital at home programs and making sure that there are considerations for family caregivers in that. And that was an idea that came from our community and daughterhood. We took that insight over to ETI. We talked to AARP and pitched them on a collaboration. We wrote a paper about family considerations on the acute hospital home, and it got into the executive order. So so Daughterhood really is like, I call it a laboratory or my sort of anthropology project. Now, having said that, so we have communities of caregivers all over the country, and we have a podcast and we have a blog, but we're getting ready to pivot it officially, create its own corporate entity as a nonprofit, get a 501c3 status, we're changing the operational model to make it more scalable. Uh, we want to reach more people. We want to take that one little thing we did and and really amp that up. But uh, and it would be less uh, sort of and focused and more community focused going forward. For our listeners, I encourage anyone who's in a caregiving role or in a future caregiving role to check out your podcasting resources. I know it's geared largely towards women and daughters, but I'll tell you, as a son-in-law and as a husband, I, I found a lot of value as well because... Again, oh, that's nice of you to say. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. That makes yeah. me feel great. Thank you. So enjoyed our conversation today. I know our listeners have as well. This topic is fascinating. We want to have you on again in the future to kind of see where, where things are going. And so thanks for being on our podcast today. For more information, find Anne, you can get her at atiadvisory.com or daughterhood.org. And thanks so much. Thank you. This is first.